0: This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country.
1: Testing, testing, one, two, three. This one going perfectly well and i feel as if perhaps i should uh, whistle or or sing uh, as we're setting this second microphone up it, it looks like a, a cross between a, a satellite dish and a and a radome um so here goes <laughs> Working well? Yeah, working fine. Not one, but uh, two microphones this week for the recording of Open Country. The first, as always, pointing towards the human guests. The second, in the direction of an altogether more melodious contributor, uh, the Nightingale, not as the old song would have it, singing away in Berkeley Square, but in a fragment of Rockingham Forest in East Northamptonshire. And if the Nightingale Fingers Cross does provide us with the the solo, the backing tracks, if I can put it that way, are going to be provided by uh, Nick Penny, a musician, and Nightingale recordist with his uh, contraptions, his recording equipment here, very similar to our own. Fair to say, I think, that your are obsessed by the song of the nightingale. You come here night and day trying to catch just a, a glimpse of it or rather a sound of it.
0: Yeah, I think that is fair to say. Um, in the period in which they, they're singing in this part of the world, um, which is usually from about the 18th of April when they arrive from West Africa um, through till June, you'll catch me up here many times of the day uh, recording and listening to the nightingales. Yeah,
1: And the idea of this uh, satellite dish structure is that it what focuses the sound of the nightingale in towards your microphones it concentrates the sound
0: yes the microphones point into the uh, dish and that focuses the sound and makes it louder I mean one problem with recording birds is you can't often get close to them so this makes the sound appear to come closer and makes it louder and also it can be used to sort of shape the sound in some ways, like a telephoto lens. You can actually pick out a particular bird or you know do other things to the sound that you're recording.
1: And is it the tune that amazes your ear, that appeals to your musician's ear?
0: It's the sound, um, there's one now. In the distance. Juk, 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 juk,
1: juk, juk. Just That's starting
0: sound. up. That was the sound. Let's see if it does some more. Bang on. We'll carry on, because uh, it, it may well be that he'll react to us and, and actually make some more sound. <laughs> That's right. It's the sound. I mean, they sound like trained singers compared to other birds, I think. There's, uh, there's something in the tone. It's very varied, and uh, they sing at night. They sing during the day as well, but they'll often sing all night. I I think the ones that sing all night are the ones that actually haven't paired up yet and they're singing for a mate, so there's quite an emotional sort of resonance to what they're doing. It brings a tear to your eye thinking uh, of it, uh, doesn't it, really? Looking Uh, for a soulmate. It's very difficult to record in this country without having a lot of man-made sounds going on in the background, aircraft and cars and so on. Nightingales sing when the rest of the world is at sleep so you know you can actually come up and record them and just get the sound of the nightingale and that can be really beautiful
1: You don't often see them in any case they're not terribly confiding birds you'll hear them but you won't see them it's unlikely that we'll see one today
0: Very unlikely that we'll see one occasionally if you're watching them a lot you might see one flitting across a ride or something at some point but they almost never sing in the open Uh, they're very much in the thickets they're ground nesting birds and they, they sing from the thickets
1: Where did all this start?
0: A friend brought me up to actually listen to a nightingale. I hadn't heard one before. This was seven or eight years ago. I knew very little about birdsong. Like most people, I could probably pick out a thrush or a blackbird, but not much else. And I was just absolutely captivated by the sound and came up uh, the next week and did some recordings. And I went back to my studio and got my harp and started playing along. Just daydreaming, meandering, trying to react to what was going on and made a quick recording of that and played it to some friends who visited a couple of days later and they were absolutely enchanted by it. And it just gave me the idea of of trying to incorporate my music with with the sound of the birds.
1: And and forgive the inappropriate metaphor, but you were very definitely playing sort of second fiddle or harp, that backing track to the... To the the nightingale, you don't think you could you, you could better that? Uh,
0: absolutely not. No, I was trying to accompany the nightingales. I was trying to pick up on the atmosphere as I remembered it when I was recording, trying to home into the the speed at which they were singing, but definitely not trying to imitate them or better them in any way. <laughs>
1: orchestra in this piece of woodland isn't There's there'
0: quite a lot of things going on actually i don 't just record nightingales. I love to get just a sound picture with a lot of different birds um, even when i 'm recording nightingales it 's lovely to have things perhaps happening in the background. I remember one night I was up here about two or three in the morning, and there were tawny owls hooting as well, and to start with, I thought, oh shut up, shut up you know you 're you're, you're disturbing you know my my recording. And then I thought, well, actually, this is a really interesting juxtaposition of the two sounds. Yeah. And, and actually, it's one of my favourite recordings. I always try and get one bird in the recording that is like the soloist. And then maybe a crow might fly over, or a pheasant maybe. very percussive sound in the distance, so it gives a bit of depth to the recording. There's a the nightingale again.
1: And when you listen to those soundscapes later, do they suggest to you the the original landscape in which they were recorded does it transport you back
0: very much so if i'm putting the recordings together into a cd or something i love to do that in january february time when they've gone when when <laughs> there isn't any bird song at yeah. all and you really need it and you're feeling a bit down yeah. and and it really does transport you back to to the woods and i i suppose because my ears are so attuned i can i can usually tell what time of the spring it might have been recorded before the, the leaves come out, which changes the acoustic of the woods. And, you know, I can, I could probably, if you just played me at random one of my recordings, I could probably tell you where, in which particular wood and part of the wood I recorded it. All
1: right, and if I blindfolded you, don't worry, I'm not about to, but if I did, do you think you could find your way from the various sounds of the wood to a specific position?
0: I, I think there's a good chance of that, yeah. I I, I once lost a, a microphone cover um, a up in the middle of the fluffy wood. Coat yeah, a fluffy coat that they have the, um I didn't realise I'd dropped it until I got back to the car. And uh, I thought, well, I've got no chance visually of finding it because it was a wood with a lot of crisscrossing paths. So I just walked until I heard the sounds that I'd last heard when I was doing the final recording. And I looked around and it was about 20 feet away. (laughs) Gosh, that's (laughs)
1: impressive. You mentioned just a moment ago about how in uh, winter uh, these recordings can lift the winter blues. Um, You've taken these recordings into places where... Um, people have been lifted in a kind of similar fashion.
0: Yes, I, I um, do some playing and talking to um, elderly people in care homes sometimes and I find they react tremendously well to the bird song. To Two things, obviously they can't get out like they used to. Um, it triggers a lot of memories perhaps of walking in the woods when they were younger. And also, interestingly enough, they can actually hear the recordings where perhaps they can no longer hear the, the birds.
1: And without being too maudling about it, you've even been asked to play um, a Nightingale soundtrack to somebody who was on the way out, if I can put it that way.
0: Yes, I didn't personally play it, but what happened was uh, a hospice um, actually rang me up and said that they had a a patient who who was really at death's door, had never heard a Nightingale and was asking to hear one. And the family were going frantic, trying to find a recording, and they'd come across me and uh, I managed to email them a couple of sound files of Nightingale's. And they emailed back very quickly saying they'd made a disc and it was filling the wards with the sound. And thank you very much.
1: I can't think of many better sounds to listen to on my deathbed. Perhaps the whisperings of family members in in one's ear would would, would better it. But uh, what a lovely way to go in some respects.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And what a lovely way to use the the experiences I'm having up in the woods to be able to share them that way.
1: Yeah. Fairly significant gate, isn't it? Mm. Not like any other woodland gate the I've the seen before. The idea
2: keep the deer out, actually. And keep the deer
1: out. Mm. Yeah. Which I suppose is uh, what you had in a royal hunting forest in the days of yore.
2: They're well managed these woods.
1: And to your eye, David Garrett, beautiful.
2: They are beautiful, yeah.
1: I mentioned the word beauty because um, what riled you a number of years ago was the notion that people only ever drove through Northamptonshire on their way to somewhere else, and in doing so they were missing beautiful places like this. And drawing inspiration from this countryside that you know so well and from from Nick's music, you've, you've started writing poetry about the county that you love.
2: That's it, yes. I've written you know, quite a lot of poetry, but that really incensed me when this travel guide came out. And I thought, God, what a cheek! <laughs> so, oh yeah, I wrote this poem, Rose of the Shires." That was one of the first ones I had published, and uh, and from then on, I realised what a nice county it is when you actually look around, you know.
1: And and published not as a poet who'd had work published before, not as a a trained poet, as a. As a former farm worker, a dairyman, a yeah. gardener—not yeah. a man of uh, letters in the first place. No,
2: no, I n- never had an. I, could, I went to a shoe technical college, so they didn't teach poetry there. <laughs> All they was interested in is making shoes. As you're walking
1: through a, a short wood, I think we're in Jackson's Ride. The sign yeah. said, "Do the words kind of spring out the ground? Is it as simple as that? The inspiration?
2: Yeah. You think of a word, a, a line." And then you, you just build the poem around it and it's difficult to just sit down and say, can you write a poem about this? But if you think of it yourself and, and, it's, uh, and it comes out, you know,
1: you, you're pleased. So what line or words first suggested themselves when you were incensed by this travel guide that uh, suggested to keep on driving?
2: Well, there's a county near forgotten. I mean, that that was the first word. There's a county near forgotten in the centre of this land, a county that is often dismissed in a manner so offhand, has no famous gorges or massive scenic mound, just quiet green fields and woodlands with a beauty so profound. A green and rolling landscape with gentle hills is all we share, but the leafy tree-lined country lanes have a quality so rare. A reservoir to visit on a Sunday after tea, while the River Nen flows slowly through on its journey to the sea. And the villages the Nen flows past, so picturesque and clean, their beauties such to be believed they really must be seen. Thorpe Waterville, Pilton, Wadno, to name but just a few, all villages steeped in history. If all their past we only knew. They talk of Kent as England's garden, or of cathedrals, ornate spires, but in my heart none can compare with Northamptonshire, the rose of all the shires. (laughs) You've got a big,
1: broad grin on your face as you did (laughs) over that last line. So how did the partnership between, because there are CDs uh, with Nick's music and your words, your poetry uh, combined, how did that relationship first start, David?
2: Well, I was asked to do a poetry slam, which is you allowed three minutes to read a poem. And then the, the lady got in touch and said, there's a, a musician wants me to write some words to him. Anyway, he turned up at my door with a harp, played some tunes, left me a CD, and I wrote four thinking that that was it and, and then he, he rung me up and he said they're great how about performing
1: we've come to a crossroads and guess who we've bumped into we've bumped into Nick I was saying earlier that uh, to David that you know he was writing his poetry you were writing your music like two tributaries of the same river and then you you converged and now you're sort of bubbling along downstream uh, together what a happy coming together
0: though I think it works really well and uh, apart from Actually uh, making artwork together, actually the poems and the music, we've had a lot of great walks out in the woods together and, and swapped a lot of uh, experiences that we've had and we've learned a great deal from the partnership.
1: We've turned our back on the forest and are taking shelter in the lee of a, a much newer piece of hawthorn hedge and uh, just now and again the wind whips up and pushes what looks like snowflakes through the gaps but uh, I guess that's a little bit of the may blossom just coming off the... Uh, hedge and standing here with me shivering is uh, Stuart um, Taylor of the Rockingham Forest Trust we say forest Stuart but even when it was the original royal hunting forest way back when it wouldn't have been dense woodland of the sort that we've,
3: we've just wandered out of no no that's, that's the sort of Misconception that people have when they 're coming up here and they see on the map about Rockingham forest, and they, they sometimes phone us up and say, "Well, where, where are is the it? trees yeah. <laughs> where, where are they all? Uh, you have to sort of explain to them that it being a medieval hunting forest, it was a, an area of jurisdiction. It was William I who, who set them up sort of more than sixty across England, and uh, Rockingham Forest was just one of those, and it took in the whole villages, woodland, pasture, open fields. It was just the whole area. So although there was a lot more woodland then than there is now, it sort of still wasn't this one concentration of woodland across the landscape. So I wonder how much the landscape has changed because we've still got woodland
1: behind us in a pocket. We've got fields, some of which have oilseed rape uh, flowers on them, which, which of course wouldn't have been a crop then. But it's a sort of classic pocket
3: handkerchief piece of countryside, isn't it really? It is. It's what most people now associate as being traditional English countryside but the landscape has always evolved for seven eight hundred years it's been changing all the time back in when it was first a royal hunting forest there were open fields everywhere it was continued from the Saxon period uh, and the Normans just continued that and, and established their castles and built on it and so even then where we are now there wouldn't have been these hedges, there would have been the woodland behind us, uh, there would have been a little more woodland, but everywhere else on the sides going down into the bottom of the valley, it was the ridge and furrow everywhere dominating the landscape that you see. And so, what's happened is that over the centuries, that has changed and evolved, and we had the enclosure processes, and the hedges came along, and the woodland was cut back. And so, yes, we've gone from sort of 25% woodland in the medieval period, to probably only about, I don't know, maybe 12% now. But it's the fact that it was a royal hunting forest that uh, meant the woodland stayed here for so long and protected it. Otherwise, it would have disappeared altogether sort of hundreds of years ago. And that protection means that although the woodland sections are getting
1: smaller and the fields have got larger over the sort of same period, there is still evidence on the ground
3: of that, um, for example, ridge and furrow farming system. There is indeed, and just, just over the other side of us from here, down in Southwark on the edge of that, you can still see a lovely piece of ridge and furrow surviving uh, with the sheep grazing on it, and that has survived purely because it's only been used as pasture. Everywhere else that we're looking at now, down towards Glapthorne, that has obviously gone over the years, being ploughed out and replaced with arable crops.
1: What of this ridge and furrow system? It, it's just that. It's a kind of corrugated cardboard type of uh, landscape, but bigger ridges and bigger furrows than those
3: left by modern uh, ploughs yes they were they were several meters across traditionally the people in the villages would be allocated certain strips in different areas across the the parish or the township so that nobody got all the best land or all the worst land and so they they moved across the parish or the township to go and look after their particular ridge and there'd have been elements of pasture running down it that they used for sort of walking up and down and getting from one area to the next and it was also a a sort of a a valuable place where they could bring cattle out and tether them to graze as well so yes there was a whole swathe of crops growing or a third of it was often left fallow for one year and then they rotated that system so mainly it was these large ridges and furrows going across the landscape with strips down the middle of of pasture where the wildlife and the flowers sort of uh, thrived really
4: hidden in between the bottoms of the trees I can see a really soft hue of purple because I know they're there (laughs) when we get closer perhaps I'll see see that they're there as
1: well but before we get there we've got to walk across an emerging crop haven't we and there's a, a nice straight line that someone's trodden there before us just the other side of this stile
4: yeah I love that slip that line that slips through into the woods Each year it's a different form, a different shape and as the colours change as well through the seasons you get that softness around the edge of the walkway.
1: We've heard from somebody who looks at this landscape or listens to this landscape with a musician's ear. We've heard from somebody who uh, listens to it with a poet's ear or a poet's eye And, and very clearly now from what we've already heard Claire Morris Wright say she's looking at this landscape in an artistic way but... Um, uh, as an artist, rather than a poet or a musician. Uh, even on a day like today, Claire, there's beauty is there. Definitely. I mean, it's raining, we can yeah. hear a big fat drops splashing off our anoraks. This is supposed to be spring.
4: It is, but after work, the first thing I want to do is just go out for a walk. You can hear, there's still some life out there in the sky even, can't you?
1: <laughs> and there's some colour in the landscape. Yes. To me, to others, perhaps with an untrained eye, we'd be seeing a bit of very, very vibrant green in the crop and some darker uh, green-brown in the woodland, not yet fully clothed in leaves.
4: But look at that beauty, all those little soft green buds all coming out now. It's a real fluffy edge to all the trees. They look fantastic at this time of year. They're just ripe, bursting, ready to burst out.
1: The poet was making the point earlier in the programme that Northamptonshire is quite unprepossessing. Nothing's on a grand scale. And I wonder if that forces you to look for the detail as an artist rather than looking at the whole landscape in a way that, you know, Turner or Constable or one of the great landscape artists might.
4: Yeah, and for me there are little tiny things on my forest walks that inspire or sit in there for years, months, weeks or however long and come back out in my prints or in my artwork at a later date. And it can be tiny little things, little bits of twig, leaves, small bits of purple from the bluebells, or even just the colour of the sky. The ideas that can sit there for ages can be many, many ideas.
1: Which is going to be hard then for me to ask you to answer this question, which is where, just looking either side of this path up through the woods, are you seeing inspiration? What is it that, uh, that grabs your artist's eye?
4: Today, today it's the bluebells, because they're just such a fantastic colour at the moment. Um... And also the white anemones that are closed up now, their little faces are hiding. But there are a lot of white anemones normally in this patch um, that are lovely. And they're, in the sunlight, they're really bright and really reflecting. And um, one thing I really love is these drips and the way that they mark the tree. They're just lovely lines and the colour changes between the bark and the water as it's dripping down.
1: So we're looking at a beech tree trunk here, aren't we? And there's a tiny little bit of pink where someone perhaps marked this tree. Uh, it's lost its top. But, yeah, as you say, these tram lines are like tractor marks across a field but down the, the trunk of the tree instead, a miniature scale version.
4: Yeah, they're lovely. And the way that they're bleaching as well, bleaching out.
1: It struck me, looking at some of your prints, it was almost as if some of them were the skeletons of autumn leaves, a sort of delicate kind of filigree, just the veins that are left once the leaf has rotted away. What's the process by which you arrive at that print?
4: So from my, my walking and sketches and ideas, I use my sketchbook as a starting point and do some drawings in a, in what I call my working ideas book and from those I formulate whether uh, some ideas about whether it's going to be lino or dry point or a painting even, or just a series of um, watercolour washes. And then um, I go into the print workshop in Leicester and I would work up from lino, cutting the lino and cutting with the tools, and um, different processes produce different textures and um, different t- tones and depths in the paper. And so once those are cut up, I would then load them with ink and colours and work with those over, you know, a period of weeks sometimes, even months, depending on how many layers of colour that I want to put upon them.
2: walk on.
1: But if you walk the same bit of Northamptonshire countryside, you know, week in, week out, year in, year out, surely eventually you run out of inspiration. Things to see have been seen before
4: because no, it's always changing. Always, every season it changes, every year it changes. I see things differently as well.
1: We've swapped the muddy paths of the Northamptonshire countryside and the bluebells for the more formal and manicured arrangement of the garden of a care home on the outskirts of Peterborough. And just looking through uh, a window on this imposing frontage, I can see Nick's harp. And I can see a smiling crowd of residents here uh, listening to a combination of his bird song and his harp music.
4: It takes you into a different world if you just sit and listen to it. Just close your eyes. It's like being out in the country almost, isn't it? Yeah.
1: it almost takes you back there physically, doesn't it?
4: Yeah, well, the next person <laughs> I lived in the country for many years. And the, the dawn song was a feature of every spring, the dawn chorus. To anyone who's lived with bird song, it's a special pleasure.